I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast and I'm joined today by James Phillips, um, uh, a lawyer and writer, to discuss his new book, Two Revolutions and the Constitution, which is uh, an exploration of really kind of the long roots of um, the US Constitution and the development of um, a, I suppose, a, a, the constitutional government in America as a result of um, the uh, long 17th century in England, uh, well, in, in, in Britain, um, and the uh, Civil War and the Glorious Revolution. But it goes further back than that. But anyway, I'm not going to carry on telling the story of the book because I'm going to uh, introduce James now and invite him to tell us a little bit about uh, 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 about the book and its development and, and the, the argument therein. So, James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Nick. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, look, it, it goes like this. As a uh, practicing lawyer for many years, I learned the value of deep context in understanding an issue or a or problem. And as an historian, uh, which I am in, um, uh, more fully uh, spending more of my time on now, uh, the same issue arises. 
Um, you can think of that issue in the, 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 the importance of context. Perhaps one way of um, reminding ourselves of its importance is the deep historical knowledge that Henry Kissinger used to demonstrate when he was uh, trotting around the globe in the 1970s, um, uh, engaging in a, a, a large number of tasks, including, of course, the separation of um, uh, the Soviet Union and China for strategic reasons and the recognition of China. He had um, a deep historical knowledge. Um, he was born in Germany himself and, and um, studied history when he went to the United States as a refugee, etc. cetera. Uh, sometimes people who lack historical knowledge and understanding find it more difficult to contextualize present events. And I know, Nick, that that's something you've touched on often in your podcasts. So for me, the question of how did the American constitution come about is really a vitally important question for all of us because of America's importance in the world. Um, I'd say particularly for its importance for the part of the world that is you know, freer and more democratic, but for the world as a whole. And America is wasn't built just on the basis of the group of people who were living in a particular place at a particular time. It was built largely by immigration to a country that was underpinned by the constitution. It's of you know, really vital importance. So when I read or hear about the constitution was just conceived at the Philadelphia Convention in 1787 by the group of people in that room, many of them remarkable people and and very learned and uh, knowledgeable about uh, Republican government and uh, constitutions to the extent they had existed at that time because the American constitution was the first major uh, modern constitution. So there were not the depth of constitutions out there that can be looked at now. But when, when it's written as though it was just handed down from on high to this group of inspired geniuses, it obviously is a story that lacks authenticity. And that is part of the narrative of American exceptionalism, which I personally think is not helpful for us to properly understand the origins of America. And I think some of the turbulence we see in America today is about a reaction to that exceptionalist narrative. So what I've tried to do is give, as you said, a longer sort of ramp to what produced the Constitution. And as you alluded to, I actually go back a bit further than uh, the first English Revolution, the trial and execution of Charles I for tyranny, for betraying his own people by uh, engaging in tyrannous government. Uh, I go back to the founding charters of Virginia and uh, Massachusetts. And one of the things that you see from the very beginning of those founding charters is that because of the logistics of uh, communication across the Atlantic when you were talking about sailing ships in the, in the early 17th century. Mm -hmm. uh, the local settlements there, they were very tenuous settlements initially, had to have a degree of um, uh, local decision-making capability. So from the beginning, they had partial independence. And what the book explores is how that partial independence sort of grows over time, how it gets mixed with the um, Republican uh, government that was this, the, the learning coming out of and the ethos of the Republican government that was established in England after the trial and execution of Charles I. And then how the Stuart Kings, uh, Charles II and James II, tried to push back on 
partial American independence, mm-hmm. how that led not only to revolution in England, this what some people call the glorious revolution, but it led to revolutions in New England, Maryland and New York. Mm-hmm. And then the development of, um, what should we say, um, constitutional government, where even in Britain there was an expectation that Parliament was at least a co-equal partner with the monarch, wasn't quite at the stage of parliamentary supremacy, perhaps at that stage, but no. moving generally in that direction, and how that reinforced, if you like, the ethos of significant local independence in America, and how all that is part of the platform for the events of the American War of Independence, the American Revolution, and the Constitutional Convention in 1787. In a way... Um for for quite some period into the the build up of uh, the the outbreak of the um, American Revolution, there was nothing inevitable uh, uh, about it. There were still significant numbers of um, American colonists that viewed uh, themselves as uh, as Englishmen, um, and there were numbers of people who thought, well, some sort of arrangement with England, with, with Britain is, is necessary, but actually breaking away and forming a, a republic um, or forming some kind of separate state, because the, the, the final model of a republic wasn't, wasn't settled for quite some time. That's not necessarily desirable. At, at what point do you think during that it, it becomes um, inevitable? That there, that there would be, um, uh, that, that that there would be a a separate state, probably a republic, governed by a, a constitution. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Not until uh, very late. So the so the momentum starts to build from 1763, when the British government, uh, significantly in order to help it to deal with the enormous debt that it had taken on in what was really a global war with France, the Seven Years' War, which was fought, um, a fair bit of which was fought in in North America, but not all of it. It was also an an oceanic and naval war, et cetera. Uh, So from 1763, the British uh, start to say, well, hold on, these colonies of ours, and we've just fought this war partly to defend them from the French and from Native Americans. These colonies of ours are very lightly touched. They're contributing a bit to Britain economically through the Navigation Act system, which involved giving preference to British ships, et cetera. Um, But they're not contributing much by way of tax revenue. We need them to actually contribute Mm -hmm. something to this enormous debt. And I have data in the book about the uh, range of um, taxation on people in the American colonies compared with people in Britain. And it was, you know, huge. Like, um, uh, from memory, people in Pennsylvania were paying something like one-twentieth of the tax that people in Britain were paying. And even the most highly taxed uh, people in the American colonies were still paying only about a fifth of what people in Britain were paying. So you can understand if you're sitting in Westminster and you're looking across at these Britons in North America who are um, prospering, well, they had higher incomes than people in Britain, that it seemed entirely reasonable that they should contribute to tax revenue. But then, for various reasons, um, this didn't go down well in America. No. And from 1763, momentum started to build. 
But it wasn't until quite a while after that that it started to become anything like inevitable. Because there was quite a, a resentment in America um, about uh, the. <clears throat> I was reading recently about the, um, the the number of kind of copies of of the Magna Carta that that were being printed in the colonies at the time. Um, I, I don't imagine particularly faithful copies of it, but sort of somebody. Uh, some scholar writing out the rough approximation of what the Magna Carta said. And these were circulating around because you're in an age of uh, mass printing and growing literacy. People looking at this saying, well, you know, I, I view myself as an Englishman. I happen to be on the other side of the Atlantic, but I don't appear to have the the rights of other freeborn Englishmen back home. Um, the the question of taxation is, is like nimbly avoided there because people will very often look at the uh, find a sense of grievance without perhaps looking at the other side of the argument but that's just you know that's just us as a creature really i think um uh, and and there was this this sense that what you know because of um the the, the lack of representation uh, mainly we are in some ways second second class englishmen um there's a, a lot of really interesting literature um, written about the, the development, development of national consciousness and national identity. And I mean, it's a, the classic book is uh, it, it Imagined Communities by Benedict Anderson, which is a, a, a fantastic book. Particularly, um, he, he writes about the this kind of weakening of relations between what he calls the metropole, which is, you know, the, the, the imperial centre in England or in London, um, and the colonies and how it is over a long period of time, colonies acquire their sense of difference, the sense of different nuts. And when you're looking at the American Revolution, I always get the sense that it's that imperceptible, that sort of imperceptible quality of different generations growing up, uh, having never seen this England that we hear so much about. And seeing themselves gradually bit by bit not as as english so much as colonists and then perhaps even as as this thing that we would have thought of at the time as as american do you get a sense of that from some of the things you've read yes absolutely and you know it's it's interesting the i've i've already mentioned that because of simply the logistics of communication in the 17th century uh, uh, communication across the atlantic that a, a degree of local decision-making was inevitable in the colonies from the beginning. So they already see um, themselves as having, as having, and they, they soon uh, have formally established local representative assemblies. And these assemblies, by the way, they're at the level of each colony, but even more so at the town levels, you have significant local, um, auto significantly lo autonomous local government at the, mm -hmm. at the town level. So, so the colonists do become accustomed to a high degree of autonomy at the town level and a moderate degree of autonomy at the uh, at colonial level. They're not initially taxed because part of the deal is, you know, the, the English colonial model was initially somewhat influenced by the Spanish colonial model. So the Crown reserved to itself a, um, a percentage of any precious metals mined in the colonies, but as you know, the, the Atlantic coast of um, North America now, now regularly wasn't um, uh, Peru or, or, or Mexico. There, mm. there, there were not precious metals mined there. So uh, 
they were lightly taxed. Now, had they failed, had the colonies failed, and of course they nearly did at the beginning, there was starvation and terrible suffering amongst the colonists. Had they failed, of course, they would have been more likely just to, um, to uh, value the close ongoing connection with uh, Britain because they would have been looking for support. But as it was, once they got to the stage, once you get to the revolutionary period, they're successful. As I said before, their incomes are higher than the incomes of people in Britain. Incomes vary quite a lot from the mm-hmm. from New England through to the southern colonies. There's a lot of variability and cultural variability within the the, the, the first thirteen colonies that became sorry that became the first thirteen states. But still, they're they're succeeding. So so ask yourself the question: you you live in a community where you have a high degree of local autonomy and a low degree of tax. And these people from across the ocean, whom you you acknowledge have had a, a key role and still have titular, uh, you know, sovereignty over you, and, and you've adopted their system of law and a whole bunch of things, you know, uh, um, that have helped you to become the freest and most prosperous uh, part of the world at the time. In the case of, of the colonies, um, and then they start asking you to. Um, to pay them uh, a bunch of money, which they hadn't previously asked for, mm-hmm. that um, that might influence your perception somewhat. And then when you have people who are deliberately agitate, agitating towards um, independence, slowly people start to imagine the possibility of an alternative way of, of arranging things. Yeah. Over this somewhat extended revolutionary period from, let's say, 1763 to the time of the Constitutional Convention, 1787, I mean, that is, after all, at least a full generation, that revolutionary period. It's not overnight. Yes. Well, I I think it's always important, whatever revolution you're talking about, French, American, Russian, what have you, to think in terms of revolutionary periods um, and what it is that... An interesting question, I guess, is what it is that brings revolutionary periods to an end when a a new established sort of status quo uh, it, it, it emerges, uh, and I, I suppose in America, <clears throat> in some ways, um, the revolutionary period almost rolls up, to, goes up to eighteen sixty-five, because the nature of um, the state that emerges, which has a, a federal government and state governments, it, it, it is a kind of a is conflicted, particularly over the over the question of slavery and states' rights, all the way up till the the end of the Civil War, when the answer about who is in charge, uh, you know, the the the, the verdict is uh, is given. So, um, so revolutionary periods can can be sort of quite it's quite an elastic concept, I suppose. Yes, well, with the drafting of the Constitution in seventeen eighty seven, and then. Its, um, its adoption in the following year and the beginning of the new government. Um, uh, uh, I, I would say personally that the, the revolution is settled, but what is not settled is how the system of government will work in America. And in that sense, as you say, it's, it's if you like, the you know, execution of the structure of the revolution that, that continues for quite a while. Yeah. And you could say, of course, in some ways, it's still today... Um, a work in progress. And this is one of the wonderful things about um, representative government within what is, at the end of the day, a fairly broad framework. The Constitution isn't obviously definitive about 
specific, mm. specific policies. It just it sets out an architecture, mm. and 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 what happens within that architecture is a lot of um, you know will will no doubt continue to change. But the issue of of slavery, to which you refer, is a very interesting one, of course, because not only of its um, because it led to the Civil War, but but because of what happened subsequent to that and is, is still happening in America. And it's, it's very interesting because at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, uh, the North was, the, the, and by the North I mean, of course, the Northeast, was already strongly opposed to slavery. It was effectively unconstitutional in Massachusetts as a result of the terms of the state constitution, which had been adopted since the Declaration of Independence um, in 1776, um, and other northern states were moving towards um, um, prohibiting it. There was a lot of, um, many people had the view that at least the importation of slaves should be terminated, and that subject is dealt with specifically in the Constitution, where a grace period up to 1808 was allowed, but it was recognised that it might terminate after that. Um, one of the things that might surprise someone coming to this for the first time is that even slave owners from Virginia were conflicted over the institution of slavery. Some of them spoke against it as an institution tending to degrade morals as, and not, not just being mm-hmm. oppressive to the slaves, obviously, but degrading the morals of the, and the work ethic of the whites. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was really uh, the further south you went, the more entrenched um, support for slavery became, and it was particularly strong in South Carolina and Georgia. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's easy to overlook when one is considering these issues in the context of the Constitution is that um, states like uh, Virginia, their slave populations were considered to be mature because the children of slaves, unfortunately, became slaves themselves. That mm-hmm. There's no need, perception of a need to import more slaves there. All this changed somewhat when the cotton gin was invented very shortly afterwards and the Napoleonic Wars led to enormous demand for um, uh, um, American cotton. And then there's, there was a rapidly increasing demand for slaves after the Constitution was adopted. Mm-hmm. At the very end of the um, 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century, which somewhat changed these dynamics. But at, at the... Um, The convention itself, the Constitutional Convention, was quite conflicted over the question of slavery, but they recognised that it was impossible to achieve the union if if slavery was immediately prohibited or even if the importation of slaves was immediately prohibited because Georgia and South Carolina were very clear that they would not join the union in those circumstances. Mm -hmm. So there had to be the the, uh, framers of the Constitution had to work with the, um, the the realities that they that they had is, is essentially they they had to uh, offer concessions in order to uh, draw the, uh, the 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 slave owning states in. There was I, one way in which I've I've often perceived um, the way southern states looked at the union. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Was it was to, 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 to many in, in places like um, Carolina, the, the union, they, they didn't really anticipate it as being a kind of um, a state they more anticipated it as being a kind of a, a useful federation if, for example, predatory European powers turned up like the British or the French. And at that point, it kind of made sense to band together and to act in unison. But by and large, the idea of, of ceding uh, control to um, a, a, a central government wasn't really what they'd signed up for. Do you get a sense of that or...? Yes, absolutely. And so, and to put that in a bit of context, so when the um, uh, states came into existence with the Declaration of Independence in 1776, um, it's, it's very important. Every, everyone's um, in America, everyone was focused on the individual colony level, if you like, and those colonies becoming independent and becoming. Uh, states, if, if you like, mini republics. So you have 13 republics down the Atlantic seaboard there. Um, they're definitely not thinking of replacing what they've convinced themselves was the tyrannical British monarch and the tyrannical uh, British parliament mm. with a new potentially tyrannous um, uh, American um, president or king or, 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 or parliament or congress sitting over the top of them. Absolutely not. But they have to carry on the war. And the truth is they did a, um, a pretty bad job of pro providing uh, resources, both men and, um, you know, finance and uh, equipment and supplies to the American army. And, of course, if the French had not joined the Americans, the outcome of the war may have been rather different. Mm -hmm. But the, the structure they adopt for the purpose of 
cooperating, as you say, in, in matters of national defence in particular, and in this case, uh, defence against the British, was um, they, they, conduct, they adopt a, a legal structure under a document called the Articles of Confederation. Mm-hmm. And in the Articles of Confederation, the states themselves as sovereign entities are represented. The citizens of the states are not represented. And the, the central government, if you like, almost too strong a term, um, of the confederation has no power to tax. So it sort of sends invoices out to the states from time to time, which the states often ignore. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it asks for them to supply men for the war effort, uh, which, and those requests are often ignored. Um, when the British come finally come to enter into a peace treaty with the uh, United States and recognise the independence that they've effectively, the British, the colonies are lost, the preamble to the peace treaty is very, very clear. It lists 13 separate states, and it says these United States be, you know, viz, and it lists the states. So it's not even acknowledging the existence of a unitary United States yes. in the peace treaty where it recognises the independence of the 13 former colonies. Uh, and this is a big issue. Uh, and, 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 and what happens in the period between the... Um, Articles, sorry, the Declaration of Independence and the establishment of the uh, sort of Confederation government and the um, uh, drafting of the Constitution in 1787 is that uh, it becomes obvious that the Articles of Confederation and the system is too weak mm-hmm. and it's not providing sufficient benefits to, it's not working. But then that still gives rise to the question you raise. So, okay, we're going to need a stronger. Um, federal government of some sort, but then there are, and some people want to leave it at that, that the cooperation will be around, let's say, international trade, defence, security, treaty-making powers, things of that sort. But others see it as both a a federal government, an overarching government, uh, overarching the states, but also a national government where the government will have its own allotted powers, including a power to raise revenue for the across all the 13 states. So it'll be a part national and part federal government. And that's a contentious issue. That's the model that ends up winning. Mm-hmm. But as you say, many people had in their minds much more a looser federal government, mm-hmm. not a federal and national government. Yeah, and it's, it's a kind of a, a kind of a, hu- a, a curious hybrid of circumstance. And um I might be wrong, but I don't think that there was a, a, an equivalent in the world at that time. I, I can't imagine that there was anywhere. Bringing things slightly forward, I mean, I, I think we'd re- be remiss to be talking about the US Constitution and not talk about really the, like the last seven, six or seven years of, uh, um, uh, of uh, American life, really, because, the you know, irrespective of where one stands on kind of Trump or Biden or whatever else, the US Constitution has been placed under immense pressure, huge, huge pressure in the last, uh, you know, since, since 2016. Um, <clears throat> would you, would it be your view that it has emerged stronger or has it been compromised or what are your thoughts? Well, I suppose two of the areas that one thinks of for recent years are the 
appointments to and the somewhat political nature of the um, Supreme Court. Uh, and that system is different from the, the system in, in Britain, of course, where mm-hmm. appointments are, are not made by a, um, you know, by uh, um, political um, administrations. Um, and the question of the uh, uh, extent of state representation rather than popular representation, which is reflected in the structure of the Senate and the Electoral College. Now, you know, I live in a metropolitan city and people tend to think in that city that um, um, counting heads for the purpose of the electorate is is the way to go um, and that um, people in smaller states should not be, um, if you like, disproportionately represented. But in very big um, uh, and very diverse countries like uh, the US, um, uh, you know, perhaps Canada and, and, and Australia, <laughs> and one, one could wonder whether how diversity is managed within somewhere like Russia too, but we won't go there because that's an entirely different uh, constitutional tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, the question of representation of the states as sovereign entity within the federal national government is always going to be contentious. If it's a federal government, then they should be highly represented mm-hmm. and, and the, the underlying electorate should not be um, just a, a, you know, one vote per, per, per person because it's, it's effectively a, a union of states, not of, under, not of citizens. But then to the extent it's a national government, then perhaps it should be of the citizens. And this is where that, that, that fusion of the, the two models, uh, national and federal that we talked about before, Mm-hmm. It, it becomes alive, right? In the structure of the Senate, where each Senate um, get each state gets two uh, senators, no matter the population, and then the Electoral College, where the number of votes in the college is the aggregate of the number of votes for each state in the House of Representatives and in the Senate, which obviously then has a bias towards the smaller states. Mm-hmm. Personally, I think it's inherent in the federal national structure of the government that um, the smaller states are, if you like, or a single individual elector, uh, individual voter in one of the smaller states has more influence in the um, in the composition of the Senate and the Electoral College than someone in Los Angeles or, or New York. Um, it seems to me that when, when people um, speak otherwise, they're forgetting the federal, the partly federal nature of the system of government. As for the Supreme Court, well, I don't really have anything to elaborate on that. The, 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 it was the, uh, um, once the decision was made that appointments would be made by the president, mm-hmm. um, it follows that, it, that the appointments would be politicised. Sure. Is, that, is that able to be undone? Could you do in America what happens in, say, Britain, where um, it's not such a politicised project. I don't think you could unwind it because people would say, well, that makes it less representative. Mm-hmm. So you could say that um, one way to view the contentiousness of these appointments is that the structure of the constitution implies um, the possibility of political appointments to the court. Mm-hmm. And the you have, um, particularly since the, the you know the, the, the January sixth um, insurrection or whatever you, you you want to call it, 
Um, you, you had a president in, in Donald Trump who was pretty explicit about his um, willingness to uh, not abide by uh, the, a, a rules-based system. I wouldn't even say the law because some of the some of the aspects of um, the U.S. Constitution as it applies to the powers of presidents rely on this idea, and the same is true in Britain, even though we have an unwritten constitution here, that you you, ha- you will have the, the honourable guy, um, the person who's willing to work with it within a set of, of given parameters. Um, and obviously, you know, Trump, Trump, you might be forgiven for thinking, is 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 the first exception to the rule, but you, you could argue that, that, that Nixon before him and various dodgy things that happened under under Reagan with the Iran Contra affair, and I'm sure there are numerous other examples. There are there have been presidents throughout the last couple of hundred years who have have bent the rules, but I don't think uh, have disregarded them to the extent that, that that Trump has. Do you think that the Constitution has successfully constrained him, or has it failed in parts? Yes. We'd better add at least one Democrat to that list. Oh, yes, yes, please, let's do that. I mean, FDR was threatening to talk about politicising the Supreme Court. He was threatening to completely stack the court. Um, But, um, look, you know, um, I I personally um, have pushed back on a couple of occasions on naming the um, seeking to characterise January the 6th as as a coup. Uh, partly because, and I, I think it's a, a riot or possibly an insurrection is a better uh, term, because um, there was, uh, if you think about what you'd have to uh, uh, do in order to pull off, uh, 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 in order to deny the proper, um, uh, you know, the installation of a president who was duly elected in, in America and to pull off a proper coup, it would be prodigious. And Trump was nowhere near, right? You'd have to somehow corrupt not only a mob and let's say some members of Congress, you'd have to um, corrupt the, 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 the military, the, um, the Supreme Court, the police forces, and you'd have to do that not just at the federal national level but across many of the states as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, 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 you're, you're right, his contempt for his apparent contempt for not only, as you say, not only rules but but norms, um, was you know shocking, and um, um, but was he ever really a threat to the proper functioning of the constitution? I don't think so. I mean, not only was he nowhere near corrupting all those institutions, but they were almost all extremely hostile towards him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that it proved that the constitution is is resilient and still uh, works effectively in its in its objectives which are to establish a system not to and then to allow the participants in that system to police one another through its famous checks and, and balances and and areas of um, if you like tension that are built into the system I think it was all extremely shrewd the way that was constructed um, I think what it shows is this, you know, it's very interesting. Actually, many people in that room in 1787 had quite a romantic view about, um, in particular, the Roman Republic, and they kept harking back to that 
they'd read a lot about it, they were, they were very well versed in it, and they did have this idea of the virtuous citizen. And Washington was seen as being the virtuous citizen who had given up much to serve as the, uh, the, the leader of the American forces in the Revolutionary War. Um, and um, that it, it, it became apparent in, let's say, the first 20 years of the Republic that the model of the virtuous citizen was a bit idealistic and not particularly aligned to what were not entirely democratic policies, but, but sorry, politics, because the electorate didn't include all free men. There was a, a property qualification in most places, and, of course, it didn't include women or slaves. Um, mm-hmm. And... and um, uh, but um, the, the ideal, let's say the founding ideal was the president as a, as a virtuous citizen. And you look at the distance that we've traveled when we end up with a sort of, um, what, um, uh, I don't want to use the word deranged, but a, um, uh, an extremely unconventional narcissist like Donald Trump. It's, it's a long way from the virtuous citizen model. Yeah. But the, the structure is still holding up and it's still resilient. He didn't manage to corrupt the structure as far as I can see. No. Well, thank you so much, James. We'll, we'll finish there. That was a wonderful discussion. Really, really fascinating. Now, just to do a quick plug at, at the end. Um, um, it's upside down. <laughs> <laughs> two revolutions and a constitution, how the English and American revolutions produced the American constitution, um, available in all good bookshops. Um, and I will be doing a giveaway. I was kindly sent this by the publisher. So I'll be doing a giveaway um, and I'll be putting a, 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 a question on the blog. Check it out uh, and we'll put, get this uh, copy out to you. Um, in the not too distant future. Um, Thanks. Oh, Nick, may I just interrupt very briefly? Sorry. In particular, it's being distributed online. So, so in particular, through the online uh, distribution channels. Okay, fabulous. So that, that's where you will find them in, in all good uh, online retailers. Thank you so much, James. And um, I, I, I do hope you um, have time to pop back in the future and, and, and talk about my, um, you know, the constitution history again, because it's, it's really fascinating stuff. Thanks, Nick. It was a wonderful discussion. Thank you so much. Okay.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.